Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here, the Andrew Lawton Show on True North on this Wednesday, September 6th. And I will tell you, I, I don't want to give you too, too much, but I would encourage you to tune in to Friday's show, uh, not just because I think you should tune into all the shows, but uh, because we're going to have a little bit of an announcement about the future of this program. And no, it's not that we're like selling to Jinwa or that we're like bringing ourselves into full compliance with Bill C-11. Nothing like that, but I think you may like it. If you enjoy the show, you'll like it. So on Friday, we'll give you a bit of an announcement on some changes that are coming up next week on the show. And also, I would tell you to stay tuned uh, to our coverage at True North this weekend, because a few of us will be on the ground at the Conservative Party of Canada Convention in Quebec City. We'll be interviewing some of the movers and shakers of conservative politics and bringing you a lot of what's happening on the ground. And we'll have a, a lot of that in the show next week as well. But it is a busy show today. The wonderful documentarians Trish Wood and Jacqueline Bynan will be on the show in a little bit of a uh, time here. I think 20 minutes or so they're coming on. And they are producing a documentary called The Trials of Tamara Leach. And that is something they're still producing right now. And they are on the ground in Ottawa at the trial, uh, one of the trials anyway, the criminal trial. So we'll talk to them about what's happening there. And in a few moments time, we'll also discuss that with Eva Chipiuk, a convoy lawyer, and one who you may recall from this interaction between her and Justin Trudeau at the Public Order Emergency Commission a few months back. A number of people have testified in this inquiry referencing your widely published comments and calling the unvaccinated racists and misogynists. And we have heard testimony in this inquiry about how some of your officials wanted to label protesters as terrorists. Would you agree with me that one of the most important roles of a prime minister is to unite Canadians and not divide them by engaging in name calling? Uh, I did not call people who were unvaccinated names. I highlighted there is a difference between people who are hesitant to get vaccinated for any range of reasons and people who deliberately spread misinformation that puts at risk the life and health of their fellow Canadians. Okay, and well, my focus every step of the way and the well, primary responsibility of a prime minister is to keep Canadians safe and alive. You have to feel for Eva Chipiak there. I, I can't recall the exact breakdown, but you only have so many minutes to cross-examine the witness. In that case, the witness was the Prime Minister of Canada who decides to use his uh, minutes to explain how he never, ever did the thing that everyone saw him on camera doing, which was calling the unvaccinated any number of names. But Eva Chipiak did a bang-up job there, and we'll talk to her in a few moments' time. One of the, the interesting updates, and I, again, just to tell you, uh, the the trial of Tamara Legion Chris Barber is going on for 16 days. Now, uh, we're on day two right now. I don't think every day is going to bring some like gasp bombshell like you get in the movies in the courtroom dramas. But I do think there are interesting things that are coming out of this. One of the noteworthy ones today was testimony from Inspector Lucas Russell, or was it Russell Lucas? It might have been Russell Lucas. I apologize. Uh, that's the problem when you have two first names, four names. But a police inspector with the Ottawa Police Service 
who well, it's Russell Lucas. Okay. I, I can't remember if I landed on the right one earlier, but it's Russell Lucas anyway. And uh, he had testified, which was actually quite interesting that he was given marching orders by higher ups and he didn't really name who they were that were to not give one inch. Those are his words, not one inch in concessions to freedom convoy organizers. Now, why that's so important is because we've heard significant amounts of testimony in the Public Order Emergency Commission, and I've done work on this myself, interviewing people, uh, that actually shows a little bit of a different story there, where police and convoy organizers and then convoy organizers and the city of Ottawa were developing a rather good rapport and had reached that infamous agreement between uh, Tamara Leach and Jim Watson of the city of Ottawa, the mayor, to consolidate the protest, to shrink the footprint, move all the trucks onto Wellington Street, and then away from residential areas so that the protest could be squarely, squarely focused where it belonged, which is on federal lawmakers and not on Ottawa residents, who Tamara Leach and other convoy organizers have been the first to say were not the target of their ire. Now, had this agreement gone through, it would have been very inconvenient for the federal government. Very inconvenient, because what do they have if not the complaints from Ottawa residents of horn honking and diesel fumes? What do they have? Nothing. They have a protest on Wellington Street, which, yes, blocks traffic on Wellington Street. But I'll tell you something, blocking traffic on Wellington Street has been what the police and city of Ottawa have done for the last 17 months. They have never reopened Wellington Street. So no one can say that there is a national public emergency that comes when cars can't drive down Wellington Street. So had the protests been concentrated there, which convoy organizers and the city of Ottawa had agreed to, it would have made the Emergencies Act completely and utterly untenable. It would have been impossible to sell, and the federal government knew that, which is why they wanted to push forward with the Emergencies Act when they did. But doing so stymied the progress that had been made through back channels, through informal, unofficial negotiations between convoy leaders and police and the city of Ottawa. Now, if you were to walk around the convoy area in Ottawa, as I did at a few points, you'd know that there were these liaison officers. I think they were wearing red vests. There were two in particular. And these officers were literally there to be conduits between Ottawa police and members of the convoy. And obviously, they were not there for the convoy. They were there to represent Ottawa police and Ottawa police's interest. But they also knew they could get stuff done. And when there was something that came up that perhaps was blocking an emergency lane, the Ottawa police liaison officer could chat with Tom Morazzo, who's going to be on the show on Friday, or Tamara Leach, or Keith Wilson, or Eva Chipiuk, and they know they'd be able to get something like that done. So it was odd to hear testimony from the court. Now, I didn't hear it firsthand because you aren't allowed to stream, but I've been following the coverage of, of reporters that are there, like Trish Wood and, and like Rebel News and so on. And it's been odd to see that uh, the police, apparently, according to sworn testimony, didn't actually want any of this progress to take place. Police were saying, do not give one inch. Now, Obviously, this is one particular inspector's perception of what he was told, but it raises the question of where such an order would have come from. He didn't name names, but he said it would go all the way up to the executive leadership of the Ottawa Police Service. For all we know, it could have gone even above that to Jim Watson's office, Jim Watson being the former mayor of Ottawa. Now he's been replaced by Mark Sutcliffe. 
But this is where he gets a little bit curious here. If this is an accurate reflection of what Ottawa police wanted, what does this mean about all of these negotiations? Was it all just theater on their part, or is this just incompetence on police, where the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing? We'll talk about this and other updates from the trial with lawyer Eva Chepiak, who joins us now. Eva, wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's talk first off about that, because I know you were literally on the ground yourself as counsel for the uh, convoy organizers when the convoy was in Ottawa. And I know you had many discussions, as did your colleague Keith Wilson, with law enforcement. Uh, You had made progress on those. So how did it feel to you to hear today that there was this directive that no concessions were to be made, not one inch, as he says? Yeah, interesting and not incredibly surprising. And I think in your opening, you were saying, what do we have left here? And if you strip away all of this other stuff is what do you have is you have Canadian citizens that went to Ottawa, our national capital, to to air their grievances to their elected officials. And that's really what it was. All this other stuff is excess, really, if you look at it. And it's not surprising to hear what they're saying, uh, because it really was chaotic on the ground. I can see that it was obvious the left hand wasn't talking to the right hand. In fact, in one particular instance, we were talking to a number of police officers, and they're like, hold on, I'm getting a call. And then they said, okay, so everything we were just talking about is off the table. And that it wasn't just one incident like that. Yeah, and I remember actually reporting on this a while ago. There was an audio uh, file that I received of a phone call uh, between a couple of people in the convoy group and an OPP liaison apologizing for what Ottawa police had done because even there between those two divisions, there was incredibly poor communication. So uh, you're right that a lot of this is a distraction and it's easy to get caught up in, I mean, the big normative question of whether you like the convoy or dislike it, agree with it or disagree with it. When we pivot to the criminal trial that's underway right now, uh, the questions should be and and are supposed to be very narrowly focused on the law. And and I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit. I know you're not representing anyone in the criminal action, but just as a lawyer, what are the key criminal questions here that are at stake in the trial? Well, not only am I not representing them in this case, but I'm also not a criminal lawyer, so I definitely don't want to overstep. But one thing that's really clear from the evidence that we've heard so far is a lot of the questions and the evidence is coming out about the Freedom Convoy in general, and not at all specific to Tamara Leach and Chris Barber and their actions. And I know the lawyers for um, both Tamara and Chris have said that they are the Freedom Convoy is not on trial, nor should it be? Because this is criminal actions by Tamara Leach and Chris Barber that are on trial in a criminal proceeding. And today, one of the, I think it was the second witness from the Ottawa Police Service. So, you you know, you expect that they're coming out with some good evidence to start off. And he was asked, did you ever speak to Tamara Leach or Chris Barber? And the answer was no. And Just very strange, because as you mentioned again in your opening, there were a lot of interactions between police and uh, the two accused. And not to have those officers come to the stand is strange, to say the least. 
Well, that was, I, I found an interesting, just to bounce around in our timeline here, an interesting aspect of the Public Order Emergency Commission, where of all of the evidence that was presented and all of the witness after witness after witness, the actual liaison officers were not called to testify. And, you know, the people that were on the ground that were talking to you and Keith and Tamara and Tom and all of it, like, they weren't there. And it, it's interesting that we're seeing something very similar take place here, where the, uh, so far, and again, it, it's only the, the second day of a, of a 16 day trial but the evidence that's being presented doesn't really seem to focus on the people and the charges and and i can say i mean there's no debating that tamara and chris were leaders in the convoy there's no debating they were there but when i saw some of the video clips that were being entered as evidence they're like clips that had like tamara's not even in the clip and chris isn't even in the clip it doesn't have anything to do with them yeah. Uh, and I'm just taking notes because this always happens. I have a thought and then goes in a hundred different directions. So you're right about um, at the Public Order Emergency Commission, not one of the witnesses ever spoke directly to anyone except for the one person. And now his name is escaping me. It was the city manager for the Ottawa City Police. Uh, yes, Steve, uh, Steve, Steve Kanalakis. Yes. Or Steve and, K as he was called. Yeah. Yes. Because of the last name. <laughs> and if you recall his evidence, which is the only real firsthand evidence of, you know, Tamara and Chris, they were very reasonable and they were agreeable to make uh, moves and work with the city of Ottawa. That's the evidence they had. Everything else was all this hearsay. And in the Public Order Emergency Commission, there was a lot more leeway for that because it wasn't a criminal trial. But from what I'm hearing as well, secondhand through um, uh, posts about the case, uh, the trial is that there is no room for any hearsay. And that's the way it should be in this type of trial. So that's good to see and hear. I, I trust that you're you're not a, a criminal lawyer, but your knowledge of the law, I think, in general, is very valuable here. And and I, I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit about the threshold aspect, because you know, criminal law. The one thing that even non-lawyers know is that you know, proof beyond a reasonable doubt here. So that is a much higher bar that has to be met by the crown than in most of the other legal cases we've seen about the convoy that are all governed by the the balance of probabilities, as it's called. Yeah. So I. Again, I won't get too far down the, the line there because I, I'm not as familiar. But what I can say for sure is the Crown is the the party that needs to prove the aspects of the charges that they've laid. Mm -hmm. So it's all on the Crown. And so they have the obligation not and in a civil case it's very different so and a, and a lot of criminal charges stemming from the freedom convoy have already um gone through the courts but you've got a very different case here in in the case of tamara and chris in that when uh, a lot of those cases had to do with uh when the police were trying to evacuate people that's my understanding at least again i haven't been privy to all mm -hmm. of these cases yeah i believe that's where the obstruction charge is based yes. that they basically were telling people not to leave when the police were saying leave yes and ask yourselves now where was tamara leach and chris barber when that was happening what were their illegal actions one was already in jail, Tamara, one, and Chris Barber was in jail and released on bail. So up until that point, they were communicating and cooperating, not only with the police, but the city of Ottawa. And this is the question I've had since the Freedom Convoy is what was illegal and when did it become illegal?
And those obstruction charges are one thing with the Emergencies Act and uh, police interactions. Tamara was in jail. What was her crime? And when did it become a crime? And same with Chris Barber. I, like this is where the, I'm very interested to hear where the crown is drawing the line. What was illegal? What actions of there were illegal? And that's, I think, what it, we're going to hear throughout this case. But so far, we haven't heard much. That That's actually a, quite a, a fascinating point that I think escapes a lot of people, which is when much of the action was taking place, the two principal characters in this story were already off the streets. And and again, I, I don't want to get too much into speculation, but I, I know there was a lot of anger in the crowd in Ottawa when those two people had been arrested, which which probably caused some of the more tense situations that uh, may have happened between police and protesters. But even then, that was after these two people were already behind bars. And it's not like the Hollywood movies where they're, you know, smuggling out their messages from the jail cell that are yeah. like getting blazed emblazoned in the the sky or something and and again i i go back to the beginning of that week when uh the city of ottawa and freedom corp the the corporation established by convoy organizers had literally agreed and they had arranged these mutual statements from jim watson and from tamara leach of what was going to happen how is that obstructing or working against police and the city when that was literally a, an agreement that involved working with police to move trucks that was i mean just what, four days before the arrests? Dumbfounded, completely dumbfounded with all of this. And that's where, again, if you go back to what I started with, is these were Canadian citizens that were escorted through the country into the Nationals' capital to protest. And they were every day corresponding, communicating, and working with the police and city officials. And then, and then all of a sudden, one's in jail. They're both in jail, even, actually. So it it still is, and I'm very interested to hear what the Crown thinks and is alleging was illegal. So, Just we'll looking see. at the broader legal landscape here, I, I know there are, it's difficult for someone who's observing this only casually to keep up with it because you've had you know constitutional challenges against the Emergencies Act and against the emergency orders. You have people that are taking their own charges and tickets to court. You've got the criminal trials. You've got all of these different threads that are connected, not even to just COVID in general, but specifically the convoy. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think is going to be the... I guess the culmination of all this, I mean, we also have the, the class action lawsuit, which uh, some people forget is still ongoing. And even people that weren't charged are finding themselves having to defend against this, this class action lawsuit. I mean, what, what's the big one of this, if there is a big one? Well, you know, it, there is so many things going on and that's, I'm glad you brought up the lawsuit because that is something that the Crown is relying on and talking about here. Well, there was a disruption and harms to Ottawa residents from the Freedom Convoy. And again, not specific to Tamara Leach and Chris Barber. Tamara, well, who didn't even have a truck there, as I have to constantly point out to people. Yes. And Chris Chris Barber's was off, off of uh, um, downtown area in any event. But they have an ability to go to court and sue civilly for any harms that were caused. That is their right. And they have taken that um, opportunity and venue. Uh, so th when the Crown is making those uh, allegations and charges, is that now their responsibility to ensure that uh, there are no harms to people in general? 
it in such a general fashion. So that's, again, it goes to what is illegal? When did it become illegal? And I, I think that the crown itself is playing in this very gray area. And I, it'll be very interesting to see what the court decides on this one for sure. Eva Chipiak, always good to get your analysis. And there's a project you're involved with. I yeah. wanted to give you a chance just to speak about here for a moment. Thanks so much. And it's because I've been involved in this for so long. And uh, like we're talking there, it, it gets complicated, but overly so. What I, what If you look at the Freedom Convoy, in my opinion, looking back at all of this, again, it was Canadian citizens looking to um, get some answers from their elected officials. And I think they're owed that opportunity. And I think from what I've seen is a lot of Canadians just don't understand the legal system, their civic responsibilities, and the political systems. And I think that's complicated things in Canada. And it's hard to get into these uh, more, you know, complicated uh, setups and established systems if we don't know the basics. So I started a, an organization called Empowered Canadians with the goal of doing exactly that, empowering Canadians so that they can feel more comfortable when they want to ask questions about what's going on in our systems so that they feel that they're part of the democracy and especially after what i've uh what's happened in this last two years people are telling me all the time we're too scared to get involved they don't want to be made an example of like tamara leach and chris barber and that is just terrifying to hear in what is supposed to be a free and democratic society so i think as canadians it's on us to get educated to learn and i encourage people to do that with me because a few people People can't stand for the rest of Canada to make sure that we're we're all in and 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 we are all in this together as well. So, well, you say that, but it always has to start with a few. So good on those who take the leadership at first, but everyone else has to stand behind them when that happens. Eva Chipiak, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right. Hopefully I uh, was a better uh, better interview for her than Trudeau. Uh, in any case, it is uh, good to talk to Eva. And I, I want to take a, a picture uh, for you outside of the legal aspect and onto one that is near and dear to my heart, which is the media aspect. And I, I'm going to be uh, talking about this a little bit on Friday. It's ended up being a convoy-themed week on the show, which I haven't had the chance to do for uh, well over a year now. So I hope you're, uh, you're enjoying it or tolerating it. But uh, the one thing I, I will bring up here is that it's important to tell these stories. And it's important to uh, have these stories told in a way that is very respectful of exactly what happened. And there's a, a bit of a funny story that I've told. When my book about the Freedom Convoy came out in uh, the summer of 2022, what was quite interesting is that at first it was a Canadian politics book on Amazon. Now, I actually have no idea how any of the selling of it works. I just sort of wrote it and sent it to my publisher and they did the rest of it. But uh, Amazon like does its own categorization and it was a Canadian politics book for a couple of weeks and it was number one in there. And then they moved it to history. And I actually quite enjoyed that because it was uh, the first draft of history. And it was this uh, the first telling of this story in history. And I, I actually, uh, my, an old history professor of mine, I gave him a copy. And I don't know if he agreed with the convoy or not, but he, uh, he certainly enjoyed uh, the book and conceded that it was a historical chapter that I, I think will be taught 
uh, in the history books. Now, how that's going to be framed and uh, uh, tempered, perhaps, is a question. The, the word tempered came to mind. Barbara wrote a question uh, in the YouTube uh, comments here. Has the regime media tempered their hatred of the convoy? I don't think they have. I think they've started to be more dismissive of it, though, because they, they really can't reconcile what Canadians saw and felt and experienced with how they really blew what had happened out of proportion in some ways, or just in some cases manufactured things. And I think that has been a, an example where they, they've just sort of avoided it altogether. Uh, but let's talk about the telling of it, because uh, Trish Wood and Jacqueline Bynan, two incredibly, incredibly accomplished and capable filmmakers, are telling the story in a documentary they're producing called The Trials of Tamara Leach. Now, I want to share just a, a little snippet of the trailer of this. We made a promise. Hold the line. I think we thought when the trucks left Ottawa, that was going to be the end of it. But we didn't realize that was just the beginning. And I think me going back to Ottawa in a couple days to this trial is kind of poetic in a way, because I'm going back to fight again. And I'll keep fighting, and I'll keep fighting, and I'll keep fighting, because the people that made these decisions and force parents to die by themselves. And force people to kill themselves. Need to be held accountable. That was a little bit from the trials of Tamara Leach. Trish Wood and Jacqueline Bynan join me now. It's wonderful to talk to you both. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? Great to be here. Well, yeah. it's good to have you. Let's start with the question of, of why this and, and why now? Because there, there are some people, as I mentioned, in, in the media largely that, uh, you know, they, they got this wrong. And because of that, they've never really wanted to talk about it again. And, and you get people that sort of say, well, COVID's over. So all discussion of anything related to the convoy is over as well. Uh, why yeah. do you want to tell this now? Well, from my perspective, as you know, I've been doing a, a podcast called Trish Wood is Critical, which I started at the beginning of the COVID regime of the COVIDian times, because I covered Tony Fauci back in the day. And I was really worried about some of the decisions being made, not on risk benefit data. So I got very heavily involved very early on in this. And I watched as we all did, as the edicts became more and more kind of authoritarian. And yet there was no way for us to fight back. We were losing all the cases in the courts. The media didn't seem to be on our side. They weren't asking people in positions of power to, they weren't holding them to account or asking them accountability questions. So then you're left with this issue. And this is where the convoy comes in. What do you do in a democratic society when you believe to the marrow of your bones as a citizen that what the government and public health in this case is doing uh, is wrong and not just wrong but harmful to people, what, what opportunities do you have when the institutions like the courts aren't working? And I think the convoy answered that question and I think it answered it for a lot of Canadians. Jackie and I are old friends. We were on the phone a lot uh, during COVID times very, very frustrated, especially over the media coverage and the, the inability of them to ask hard questions. And when the convoy happened, we said to each other, wow, maybe that's what has to happen now to get people to start paying attention. Because remember, they wanted to talk to the prime minister. They went to Ottawa not to be 
bad or mean, but because they wanted to open discussion on, on the mandates. And he refused to talk to them after he spent a few days smearing them uh, in the news media. So by the time they got there, the city of Ottawa was terrified about who these big you know, galoots were going to be. So, so the, the question for me right now, and I'll, I'll let um, Jackie pick this up because she heard a lot of this out. I was inside the grotto. She was outside with the people is what do you do when the institutions that you've trusted all your life have stopped working for you? And you believe that in the, in the marrow of your bone. And if we lose the ability to protest on uh, mass, the way people did in Ottawa, then I think we've got a real problem here. Jackie. Yes, and that's, we've talked about this ad infinitum, locked down and locked up. And I agree with her. And I will say that I think the, the convoy and the protest is probably the single most successful human rights. Some people say grassroots. I say human rights uh, protest in a generation in this country. Something that Canadians didn't normally do. It was not something we would see the average Canadian do. They are they're compliant. They want government. They just want to have a nice life. And for some reason, a group of people decided this wasn't good enough. What they were hearing on the news, which is largely controlled by the government, was not what they were feeling or thinking. A lot of people. Now, there were a lot of people who went along with that, but there were a lot. And Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, when we saw them, we saw those trucks they became the face of something we were thinking and it gave us gave us hope that we didn't feel powerless because we believed in these institutions but they weren't speaking to us or listening to us or caring for us and that's why we thought this is a very big moment in canadian history and we have to document it in what way and being women we you know we're so compelling tamara leach is such a compelling uh character whether yes. you like her doesn't matter as a woman or just as a person who really cares about their country, you have to give her due. She, as she said, she holds the line. She has that temerity to say, this is my hill. And that's what we were inspired by her. One thing, you mentioned character, and I actually was going to ask about this later on, because a lot of your experience as a producer, Jacqueline, has been in, in fictional work as well. I, I know you've done uh, things that have kind of told stories in a more dramatized way. And, and what people fail to realize about the convoy is that, I mean, irrespective of, of the political implications of it, which are, are vast, there's a story here. And there's quite a, a riveting story of, of this. And, and I'm wondering if you're going to capture that in, in the story oh. that Oh, we are. We are. This is this is very interesting you say that because Trish and I talk about this because we've both done this. I mostly do crime, true crime series that are, that are investigative, but there is mm -hmm. always some impressionistic drama, as they say in it. Yeah, I, I guess fiction, I meant more dramatized than fictionalized, yeah, yeah, I know. But, uh, and, and, but I wasn't you know, besmirching your work. <laughs> it's usually serial killers or people who do horrible things. Yeah. But this well, is... Well, apparently that's Tamara, if you ask yeah, the uh, Ottawa is, media. Yeah, but this is, uh, this is still a criminal case we're mm. following here and what I saw outside the courtroom I could do a whole documentary just on what was outside the con outside as Trish and I were, were, were texting back because there were two groups of people there were the people there supporting Tamara which were you know we talk about Trish and I talk two solitudes these were the working class people there was the tinfoil hat man who has the tinfoil hat and he will be there outside with the Canadian flag 
as long as the trial goes on. There were uh, other people who used to work for the government or work for RCMP, and they were they just were incensed. And then there was the the legacy media who were in a little camp by themselves. And we were there from about eight o'clock in the morning till the, the end of the day. And there were these little skirmishes that would arise. And it was a very interesting to see that there were two different groups. And we tried to capture that because I found the legacy media wasn't talking to any of these people. And you know, once you get past the, the look, because they don't look like the people who wear suits and go and go into work nine to five in Ottawa, they don't look like them. They're just your average person. And once you start talking to them, they made a lot of sense. And they they have more they were more insightful than a lot of things you heard on the news. And that's what I found interesting. Because I know when Trish was inside, she was telling a different story. There was two different groups in there in the courtroom. Well, it was I, a I real sense your, of your background with, with investigations has been incredible and and typically the media has always relished wanting to talk to real people and 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 not wanting to talk to commentators and and it's amazing how that sort of has reversed like i've seen stories that have been published about the freedom convoy that interview a criminologist often the same one uh that interview a criminologist from here and a professor from there and don't actually speak to anyone involved in this yeah and well it's a little grass, yeah, because it just yeah, because it's a grassroots movement, which I think it is. That's what I think to your point, that's mm -hmm. exactly what we were, were talking about. It's a little bit of anthropology when they do that, because I, I would frame this in a sense as a class struggle. Um, and it, it's almost as if now the laptop class, some of the, the legacy media people, I'm not slamming them, they have hard jobs, but they there is a suggestion that they view the convoy people, the people who attach themselves to the convoy, the people who protested with the convoy as this exotic species, right? In the olden days, and I was there in the olden days, the media <laughs> used to love working class people. We wrote, you know, songs about coal miners and we rushed to support them against the man, you know, the corporate man and the bad government. And now it feels very much like the media, which we all know is, you know, left leaning now, virtually all of them, uh, is not allied with the working people, which is why the smears from Trudeau of them being racist and sexist, homophobic, and how can we tolerate them, all that stuff, really landed because I think there is a huge divide between the laptop people, the legacy media people. We saw it in the courtroom. The, the trucker people were lined up behind the defense table. Everybody else in suits virtually was behind the crown table in the courtroom. And it really felt like there was a massive social divide. And unless, I'll say this to you, Andrew, and Jackie and I talk this, about this almost every day. If we don't sort this out, where we stop demonizing each other because we hold different views. I sat in the courthouse and I talked to a woman today. She's an Ottawa citizen, hates the convoy thinks the word, all kinds of terrible things, none of them provable or, or litigatable or are true, but there's a lot of folk, folk stories out here right now about the convoy from local people, just not true. We had a really pleasant conversation, but she was saying things that I, if I hadn't been kind of hanging on to my seat the way I was, I would have been angry about. We cannot we cannot continue to demonize each other this way. And I feel that the, the convoy trial and the way the convoy has been treated by the media and the elites, if we can call them that, um, is a harbinger 
of this country blowing apart if we do not sort it out. We are Canadians. Canadians, we share Canadian values. We all love hockey. We cried when the Humboldt bus crashed. We put the hockey sticks out. That's the stuff that binds us together. If we disagree on cultural things, that's fine. We can disagree. If we disagree on, on COVID policy, we can disagree about that too. But we have to stop with the ad hominem attacks on each other. And the, and the convoy trial is really, really showing that. And that's a bit of what Jackie was talking about outside the building. Yeah, yesterday. I think whatever happens in this trial, uh, it will go on. The hist there will be many books, there will be many documentaries of people doing this because we haven't figured it out yet. It, this is a historic time in our in our in our country and this protest and this trial i think is sort of where we're going to that it may change and we don't know what's going to happen but whatever happens things will never be the same and i don't know if it's going to be good or bad but i do think the reason why we're fixated on this is because we all know no matter what side of the coin you're on that this is a big moment and no one knows how it's going to end. I hope it ends well, like Trish said. I hope it's where we can go. Like, remember the old days when you didn't know what your politics were and you just you would yeah. just still have a beer or a glass of wine with someone? <laughs> I didn't know. We're I, all I'll, I'll ask you, Jacqueline. I mean, when you make a documentary about a, a serial killer, for example, I think you can fairly safely say that 99.9% .9 of the audience are going to line up with the the serial killer is bad. At least I hope that. Maybe even 100 if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. uh, when you make something about a topic that people aren't familiar with, and I actually love watching documentaries about things I'm not familiar with because I can go in and uh, kind of with a blank slate and I don't have a preconceived notion. And then afterwards you look into it and you have to sometimes separate out the, the filmmaker's bias as you should from any product. But with something like this, I mean, anyone who knows about the convoy now probably has a pretty strong opinion about it one way or another. And, I, and I'm wondering how you or if you work against that in the story you're telling. And one example I've shared on my show is that my mother, a uh, lovely woman, uh, very supportive of me and my work, not the convoy demographic, not a convoy supporter. And I kind of knew that public opinion was turning when she had said one day unprompted, oh, you know, what they're doing to Tamara Leach is terrible. Because that was for her the hook. She maybe didn't realize that she didn't agree with the convoy, but she could agree with a mom that doesn't seem like the model criminal or the yeah, poster child for, for criminality. But I'm curious what your approach to this is on, on how you break through those preconceptions, whatever they are. Well, bad, you know, I, the reason I like doing crime, true crime is, you know, it's, it, you don't have to do any politics there. There's, there's the bad guy and then <laughs> they're victims. And, yeah. and I think that ha those stories have to be told. We have to make the bad guys, the bad guys. I think in this story, but it all all crime boils down to good and evil. And I think this story boils down to good and evil. And it depends, to use the words of Bill Clinton, depends on your definition of criminal, <laughs> and of, of good and evil. And, and I think that's when we talk about the two solitudes. I think we're, you're either the convoy's good or the convoy's bad, Tamara Leach bad. You know, that's what I think this boils down to. And it's really hard to find anything in the middle. That's why it's really it's easy in a way to do true crime because you already know who the bad guy is and you, you I know, like to take think a that's really important. That. All right. Let's, let's get the tension in here, Trish, go ahead. Well, no, I know she agrees with me. I would just look circle back differently because there are facts. Facts are things, right? Right. And, and, and Ray McGinnis has done a brilliant piece on the POEC that blows apart all 
virtually every bad smear made against the convoy, right? Arson, no. Uh, weapon, load of weapons, no. Um, money from the Proud Boys and America, no. Like all of that was wrong. Uh, supported by Russia. CBC said that. False, false, false. And so what I think Jackie and I are experiencing here in the city of Ottawa, even in our hotel, one of the people in the restaurant had this wild story that was completely not true about the convoy, is that the facts actually support the convoy's own narrative that they were here to protest and things went relatively smoothly without a lot of trouble and there were a lot of bad. There were a couple of fringy type people attached as there are to every massive protest, right? But the, virtually all of the terrible things that made headlines about the convoy are demonstrably false. And the POEC found that. That is out of the mouths of the financial crimes guys at the RCMP, the security folks. They all said, yeah, no, nothing to see here, people, really. So what we're left with is a massive hearing that made findings of fact that was not reported in the mainstream media the way it should have been. And why wasn't it? It wasn't because they were complicit in pushing those fake stories, right? I mean, the arson story was absurd on its face. Only an idiot. Oh, and, and, and literally repeated on the floor of the House of Commons by people that have never apologized, that have never admitted uh, that it was not just muddy or fuzzy or kind of two-sided, but demonstrably fictional. That's important yeah. too, because that part of the story that Trish is talking about didn't get covered as enthusiastically as the actual protests with the truckers. For mm -hmm. example, when I was outside yesterday, there was one guy there who obviously was a retired public service worker. Like I, I, I would have bet my 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 condo on it. He was he he asked me why I was there, and he said, um, "Well, they they ruined the, they ruined Ottawa. They just they were they were terrible. They were horrible, and it was illegal." I said, "Well, it's my understanding that the judge ruled it was." A legal protest. He goes, "No, it wasn't illegal, and I don't care what the judge said. It was illegal." Well, how do you argue with someone like that? There's that, you just, yeah. that, and he didn't care what, what the facts that we had all, that Trish is talking about, that all this stuff had been largely debunked. Didn't matter. He had it in his set. This is the way it is. I hope she goes to jail for 10 years. Oh, and then he said, you know, he asked me a whole bunch of stuff. Well, you seem like a logical person. Do you like Tucker Carlson? I said, yeah, I love him. He goes, that's it. <laughs> We were running away. That's a good way to end the conversation with a retired bureaucrat in Ottawa. Yeah, that, you can use that. Anyone can use that. If you want to get out of it, just say you like Tucker and it goes away. Carlson. Can I add one thing to that? And that it's Please. what she said is really important because she's describing what I call the invasion of the body snatchers moment. And we have them when we confront certain people with irrefutable facts that completely debunk their thought process, right? It happens on COVID when you say the vaccines don't prevent transmission. You know, these are the people writing, I got COVID. Thank God I've got two shots and four boosters. I got COVID. I'm so grateful I've had the shot. And you're saying, well, so it doesn't prevent transmission. Well, no, that's we safe and effective, right? That's how things. And so we've this world has been created because people in this country now have bilateral siloed information systems. They curate their social media feeds to feed their own biases. 
they're either watching legacy media or doing totally the indie thing. And so we live in two separate worlds and we hold on to those in the context of a moral framework. So somebody challenging with facts, this happens in my own family. My oldest kid was a little bit like this a few years ago. He's softening, but he's like, mom, you've always got facts. Stop, you know, <laughs> stop attacking me with facts. And, and, and I always thought as an investigator, well, that's a good thing, right? But, but we this is a dangerous world. If, if, if the trucker's legacy is constructed out of these falsehoods that have landed so heavily on this very city that I'm in right now and used to live in and used to love, but has contaminated much of the thinking here, we've got a problem. It's no different than the witch trials. It's no different than any of the other kind of moral panic situations in history where facts, McCarthyism, facts became irrelevant and belief systems feeding tyranny took over, right? That's, I hate to say it, but that's kind of where, where we are right now here. Can I, can I just add, I want to go back to why we're doing the doc. Okay. Well, that's good. We're going to wrap it up after this. Yeah. So let's hear this it. This is why she's talking about that is Tamara Leach or Tamara Leach. I keep calling her by the Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, they are not your typical Canadian. They are willing, to, despite everything, despite the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, they're willing to take arms against that sea of fortune and sit there and take it. And they are going to hold that line. And as a Canadian, you have got to admire their fortitude. And I think that is one of the things that I find so, so hopeful and exciting about Tamara. And that's one of the reasons why we, we wanted to, to dig deeper and do this documentary. Well, I'm so certainly glad you are. It is called The Trials of Tamara Leach. We can put the graphic up on the screen there. I know you are uh, having the trailer available. We played a, a little bit of it. And you're also doing a crowdfunding campaign, which people can chip into, uh, not on GoFundMe, thankfully, because then they'd uh, freeze your bank accounts and seize the money. So you've used uh, Give, Send, Go, which has proven to be more reliable. Uh, Trish Wood and Jacqueline Vine, and wonderful to talk to you both. Thank you so much for coming on. Can today. I make one small comment before we say goodbye yes of course the you do it dangerous the take up arms was metaphorical because i know how yeah. mainstream media watches these yeah. shows right it metaphorical. we all know that but i know all right. You know, it's, it's terrible that we've lost metaphor now in this day and age with the way the media works. So, all right. Well, now we have the context to add if they, uh, if they take you out of context. But good for the ratings anyway. Uh, <laughs> wonderful to talk to you, Trish and Jacqueline. Thank you. And uh, looking forward to your continued coverage in Ottawa. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye. That does it for us today. That was an absolute riot. We've got to have them back on and certainly we'll uh, share when news of their documentary becomes a bit more clearer in focus as far as timeline and all of that. But uh, they're still getting material out of it, so can't release it just yet. Uh, we'll talk to you all on Friday with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.